You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. If you made a movie about a laid-off, sad-sack, 50-something guy who was given one big chance to start his career over, the opening scene might begin like this. A Monday morning in April, sunny and cool, with a brisk wind blowing off the Charles River in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The man, gray hair, unstylishly cut, horn-rimmed glasses, button-down shirt, pulls his Subaru outback into a parking garage and, palms a little sweaty, grabs his sensible laptop backpack and heads to the front door of a gleaming, renovated, historic red-brick building. It is April 15, 2013, and that man is me. I'm heading for my first day of work at HubSpot, the first job I've ever had that wasn't in a newsroom. HubSpot's offices occupy several floors of a 19th-century furniture factory that has been transformed into the cliché of what the home of a tech startup should look like. Exposed beams, frosted glass, a big atrium, modern art hanging in the lobby. Riding the elevator to the third floor, I feel both nerves and adrenaline. Part of me still can't believe that I've pulled this off. Nine months ago, I was unceremoniously dumped from my job at Newsweek magazine in New York. I was terrified that I might never work again. Now, I'm about to become a marketing guy at one of the hottest tech startups on the East Coast. There is one slight problem. I know nothing about marketing. This didn't seem like such a big deal when I was going through the interviews and talking these people into hiring me. Now, I'm not so sure. Dan Lyons was the technology editor for Newsweek. He created the blog The Secret Diary of Steve Jobs. He's written for the New York Times Magazine, GQ, Wired, and Vanity Fair, and the HBO series Silicon Valley. His new book is Disrupted, My Misadventure in the Startup Bubble. Thank you for joining me, Dan. Thanks for having me. Dan, set the scene for us. What was it like to be the technology editor for Newsweek? That seems interesting because while I've never seen Slate, Gawker, or BuzzFeed on the newsstand in my grocery store, I still see Newsweek. Yeah, it was it was amazing. I I had always wanted to work at a place like that, and I had spent my whole career in journalism covering technology. And uh, in 2008, I got hired to be a technology columnist and reporter. And the the title was technology editor, but essentially the the the, the lead writer about technology for Newsweek. And and for me, it was like. I died and went to heaven. You know, it was like uh, it was still the old Newsweek in those days. It was still owned by the Washington Post. It was in midtown Manhattan in these kind of old offices in a high-rise building looking out over Central Park. And you'd walk through the halls and there'd just be these legendary journalists walking around. And, um, yeah, I always wanted to pinch myself. I just couldn't believe that I had actually finally made it to a place like this. And and it was in the days when uh, if you – you know, the cover of Newsweek meant something. I, I wrote a story while I was there about the iPad when, when Apple introduced the iPad and it made the cover of Newsweek like what's important about the iPad, everything, you know, and it was it was that it was still had the kind of impact that then other people would write about it saying, Newsweek, you know, proclaims the iPad a big deal. Like it still uh had a huge impact across the culture. Yeah. It was it was uh it was extraordinary. It was really, really um very fulfilling and satisfying to work there. 
you mentioned that you started there while it was owned by the Wall Street Journal. That didn't prove to be the case. Uh, often happens these days. The big fish eats the smaller fish, and afterwards, it takes a while for the digestion process to set in, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, uh, Newsweek went through a, a, a tough process where um, it had been owned. I think the Washington Post owned it for, gosh, decades. And the Post was losing money. The parent company was losing money. And then we were losing money. And we could look all, all around us and see that the media business was in trouble. And uh, uh, ad advertising revenues were dropping off. So uh, the, the Post put Newsweek up for sale. They said, we just have to sell off this asset. And we were bought by uh, Sidney Harmon, the guy who founded Harmon Carden, the stereo stuff. He was 92 years old and a billionaire. And he didn't really want to make money with it. He just wanted to kind of break even. He just felt it was an important institution and should be saved. And that seemed great. That seemed terrific. And then he turned around and said, but I'm going to merge Newsweek with the Daily Beast, this blog that's owned by IAC, Barry Diller's internet company. And so we changed hands again. And then sort of the really the bottom fell out because the company, then, then it really started losing money, like really it was bleeding money. And, and uh, most of the old staff left at that point. I was one of the few that hung on through that transition. All, everybody else took off. And then now since, since I've left, the magazine changed hands again. It's owned by someone else. And they basically hired an entirely new staff. So it's basically the the, uh, the name is the same and the brand is there and it's on newsstands. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's gone through what, one, two, three, three jumps since since the you know the beginning. When did you start uh, creating the secret uh, diary of Steve Jobs, which seems to speak to your satiric inclinations? Yeah, um, I started it when I was at I was at Forbes magazine for ten years before Newsweek. And in, a, I think it was 2006, when blogging was still kind of a new thing and it was taking off. And I wanted to learn about blogging and how to, how to write a blog and create a blog. And there were three big blog platforms. So I started different blogs on each platform. And um, there was also this thinking at the time. There was a sort of utopian tech thinking that said, you know, companies aren't going to need to do public relations anymore. We might not even need the media anymore because... CEOs will just have their own blog, and they'll be able to just be completely transparent, and the CEO will just tell you what's going on, and that's all you'll need to know. And I, at the time, thought that was the worst idea ever. <laughs> that, like, if I were in PR at a big company, the last thing I would want is my CEO writing a blog and revealing how awful he really was, right? And so, yeah, right? And then I thought, well, which CEO would be really good to do? And I tried different ones, and I somehow latched on to Steve Jobs. I didn't know much about Apple at the time. I mean, I had an Apple computer, and I liked Apple, but I wasn't a big Apple fan. Or, um, But I thought they were so secretive and a little bit kind of full of themselves, and they took themselves so seriously that I thought that's kind of ripe for uh, for satire. Right? You kind of could poke fun at that and of the whole cult of Apple. You could make, you could make some comedy out of that. So I started doing that, and I did it from yeah, 2006 to... 2008 or so, shut it down. And then in 2010, I sort of revived it for a little bit. But it was really a, a very short-lived thing. But it had, a, it had a really good audience, and it was really, really fun while it was on. You, In it, you described Apple, in a sense, as being almost like a Scientology, in a way. A kind, this, you described the tech world as having a kind of cult-like atmosphere. Yeah, I, 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 I loved that. And I had this famous picture of Apple had a 
uh, a really, really great head of PR, but she was very tough. Uh, her name was Katie Cotton. She she, uh, she she retired recently. She was brilliant, and most of us in the press who had to deal with her thought of her as a, a formidable adversary, let's say. So I, I once had a picture of, of uh, I said, oh, there's Katie Cotton waiting to for the reporter from the Wall Street Journal who's coming to meet with us today. And it was a picture of a prison guard on top of a wall with a rifle, you know. And, <laughs> and I think even she got a kick out of it. She sent somebody who knew me a note saying, with her real picture saying, please use this from now on. Don't You don't have to use the prison guard thing. But, but yeah, I had this idea that it was just, you know, it was very broad, right? I mean, this was like a cartoon. It was like a comic strip. So it was that kind of humor. But it was like, this was like this cult compound. And I mean, there were aspects of it that are, that sort of ring true. Apple really does monitor its employees very closely. And uh, there is scary stories about security coming in and finding out who the leaker is and shutting them down and taking them out and stuff. But, but it was, it was very broad humor about, I guess, about, Groupthink and cult thinking that that you know people believe they're on this mission and and they don't they don't take criticism very well you know? no, they no. don't have a good sense of humor no that sense of humor seems to be entirely uh, having redacted I said to somebody once because because this guy named Guy Kawasaki who was a famous Apple employee and I said I kind of thought they were like I, I don't don't they have a really good doesn't Steve Jobs, he seems like he would have a really good sense of humor. And he said, yeah, he does. If he's making fun of you, he has a great sense of humor. If you're making fun of him, not so much, you know. I said, oh, okay. So he said, yeah, like Steve doesn't really have, like, people, you know, no. So so it was a little, there was an element of anarchy to it, too, that people, I think people responded to, that it was on this blog platform. I was anonymous. Nobody knew who was writing it. And it was funny. And it was sometimes saying things that were true. And it was like, yeah, it was like this little bit slightly out of control like there was a thing in, I grew up in Boston and there was a thing in Boston where there was this famous disc jockey named Charles Laquadera who one time and he had a, an alter ego named Dwayne Ingalls Glasscock or something like that and there was a I don't know if it was staged if it was real but one time Dwayne took over WBCN for like 72 hours and like wouldn't like he had locked himself in he was going crazy and he had just taken over the radio station and they couldn't get him out and he was playing anything he wanted and I remember that sense of like anarchy like oh my god someone I was a young kid at the time. I guess I probably half believed that it was it was real, you know, that this crazy character had taken over a radio station. And that was what fake Steve felt like. It was like some lunatic has got hold of the Internet and is writing this stuff. And it's crazy. And it's you never know what's going to happen next. You know, so it was kind of fun. It, you found yourself on the wrong end of Newsweek. Describe what happened to you. And it was that was a, a guillotine moment. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, terrible. That's a good way to describe it. I, I, uh, um, I survived the transition to the Daily Beast, and the new editor was Tina Brown, and things were going okay, not well. At one point, they started talking about launching a tech blog. They had they had made a deal with Andrew Sullivan to take over his um, his politics blog. So they had, I think, they had this idea for a while. Let's the the way to survive this would be let's build a stable of blogs. Like that's what we'll turn the online version into. So they came to me and said, we want you to do, be be the Andrew Sullivan of tech. Like you already did the fake Steve thing. So we'll sort of revive that, but it'll be under your name. You won't be a fake character anymore, but you'll have this big tech blog and you just run that for us and be like what Andrew Sullivan is for politics. And I said, oh, that's that's actually really good because for the first year after the transition, I often didn't have much to do and I couldn't, you know, my editor had left, so I didn't have anybody I was working for. But I finally thought, oh, this is great. Things are cool. This is going to, this is going to be awesome. And uh, I don't know if somebody decided that wasn't a good idea, but one Friday morning I just got a call from my editor saying, 
who was a friend of mine, saying, so I got bad news, like you're you're done and you get two weeks and see you later, bye. And I was like, wait, I don't want to get like a severance package or anything? And they were like, no. Um, the people who left when the, when the acquisition happened or when the merger happened, the old guard all got good severance packages. I should have jumped then, mm. right? That's when you got the money. Um, I waited longer and then they were really broken. So anyway, so yeah, I just got thrown out. And, and I tried to bargain and say, well, how about could I, could I take a different job? Because they're like, we can take your pay and hire five kids right out of college. That's literally what she said. And I was like, Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> what I was like, it? ouch. Yeah. <laughs> and like, well, and I was kind of like, well, yeah, I guess I'd take the five kids out of college too. I guess, I, you know, I, get, I can only do so much. But it was like, yeah, that's pretty harsh. And um, so I said, well, how about if I take, I'll take a really big pay cut and cut my pay in half? No. And they go, well, how about uh, just keep me on for six months? I'll start job hunting now. But it'll be much, much easier for me to find a job if I if I have a job. You know, I'll be like, so I won't be like out on the street, you know, cap in hand. It'll help me. No. It's like, how about if you don't pay me, but I just keep my job title and uh, <laughs> at all until I find another job? No. So I tried all these rational rationalizations things. And anyway, they, they – um, the five stages of corporate grief. Yeah, it's like yeah, it's like what what is that? Uh, uh, what's her name? Denial, uh, anger, anger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, mourning. Yeah. I went through all of that, and it was it was weird because I had always, I had never been laid off before. I always had jobs, and then, you know, I never had to even look for a job. I was always in a job, and then would hear about something or get poached away to something else. You know, it kept getting better and better. So for the first time ever, I was like out looking for a job, you know, now he's one of those, and, and it had happened to a lot of my friends in journalism, you know, and you get that call like, hey, dude, I'm looking for work. If you know anybody, let me know if you hear anything. I'm just calling all my friends to put the word out there. <laughs> so suddenly I was that guy calling all my friends like, hey, man, if you hear of anything, let me know. And they were like, yeah, you're going to land on your feet. And like, uh, I don't know, man. I don't know if I'm going to land on my feet. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was scary. It really was. That was just the prelude to the real time of <laughs> yeah. It, things actually got worse, believe it or not. <laughs> this was these were the good old days. The good old days. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. These was the golden era. Just just unemployed. The golden years. I'm just thinking of that David Bowie song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> you went at, started looking for jobs, and you looked in tech. How did you find this company that you ended up with? I literally found them on LinkedIn. Someone that I didn't know, but I must have had a connection to on LinkedIn, had posted an ad saying, the company's looking for a content creator. I thought, okay. Uh, That sounds like essentially what I do. I create content. And uh, I had started thinking I shouldn't, I was working, I was running a blog mm-hmm. for, for a company in New York, but the blog was in San Francisco. And it was a tech blog, and I was doing that, but trying to find a real job or a better job. And thinking, maybe going to work inside a tech company would be better. There's no more media jobs. I won't find, I'm not going to find another job like the one I had at Newsweek. So, great, I'll go work at you know, a big tech company. And at least it'll be stable, they'll pay you well, um, Benefits, stock options, all that great stuff. Um, And a lot of of journalists do that. You sort of get to a point in your career and then you say, okay, 
you made a name for yourself enough that you go get a PR job at some company and you work in PR at some like HP or something and you you know do that for the next 10 years and then you're done, right? Like it's okay. It's kind of like where they put you out to pasture. It's kinda... Sounds good. I mean, yeah. retirement, good to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> not and, you exactly know, your experience. No, 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 not not mine at all. But by the time you get to that point in your career, you uh-huh. also figure like, you know, you've learned enough about dealing with media. You've been on the media side of it that you probably are useful as a PR guy because you kind of have some perspective. Like, here's how I would handle this. I can tell this reporter is this. You know, you, you kind of know who all the reporters are, and you know how to advise them how to deal with such and such a story or whatever. So. Um, so that's why I started thinking. And so I found this ad on LinkedIn, and I literally, I just wrote to the woman. Someone told me recently, they listened to some radio interview I did, and I used the word literally way too much and incorrectly. Some sort of grammar <laughs> grammar person said to me, stop doing it. I just, I just noticed I hurt myself to it now. I wrote to this woman that I didn't know and said, hey, I'm, you know, so-and-so. You don't know me, but I saw this ad for a content creator. And they said, wow, well, yeah, we know who you are, and uh, let's have lunch. So I went and had lunch, and... Um, then they said, okay, we, that went pretty well. Why don't you come back and meet the chief marketing officer? Met him. And that went well. And they said, why don't you meet the two founders, the CEO and the CTO? And okay, I really like them a lot. They were really you know, smart guys and seemed pretty cool. And, and they weren't like 25. They were in their 40s. So I thought, okay, these guys are grown-ups. This is like a, this is a real company with, with you know. <laughs> grown-ups. Grown-ups. Because <laughs> a lot, you know, you, you don't want to be working, at least I didn't want to go work for some. I, I had friends who left journalism to go work at, uh, I don't want to say the names, but some tech companies where, you know, the founder is like some 23-year-old bro and, and it's out of control and crazy and uh, and it never worked out well. So mm-hmm. I wanted to go work someplace with grown-ups. Um, and I thought, oh, this is great. And then they, they made me a job offer and it was a little bit vague and fuzzy about what I would do. But it sounded like, okay, I'll, I'll think on my feet. I'll get in there and I'll – it's a fast-growing company. I'll, I'll make a role for myself and this will be cool, you know. And they had great benefits. The pay was good. They were going to go public, so I got stock, and I thought I might make some money on this IPO. So it was like, you know, a really good outcome, I thought. On your first day there, you write that you got there, and you describe it as kooky and kind of forced. Yeah, like everybody's I... trying a little too hard to show <laughs> how much fun they're having. Like, we're having a blast. And they have like... And I didn't. I hadn't seen that part of the company before I took the job. I had met, mm-hmm. you know. Now, what was the company? Tell us the name of the company. Can we stay at the name of the company? Yeah, that's right. It's, it's called HubSpot. It's like hub. People in Boston call Boston the hub. Mm-hmm. HubSpot, and they make software for marketing departments. So it's real software. You have to pay money for it. It's uh, you pay, you subscribe to it, and you use it over the internet. And uh, you know, you can send out email campaigns or write a blog, and it's all things that, that people in a marketing department would need. Okay, so you're you're at HubSpot and you arrive there, and it feels kooky, kind of forced. Who do you see on your first day there? Well, that was the other weird thing. So I got there, and I went to the second floor of the building where the reception was, and I asked the, the woman, and, and I said, "Hey, you know, I'm here, first day of work, and I'm here to see so and so," and she's like, "I." no idea who you are. I don't know. Like she looks at her computer. I, I don't have anything here for you. And I said, well, can you, you know, ask for this guy? And she makes some calls. She's like, I don't know. I don't know where he is. And she's like, maybe, maybe you should sit down. 
just sit over there in the lobby. And I could tell she's looking at me like I'm a crazy person who wandered in <laughs> claiming I have a job there, right? And meanwhile, everybody else is coming to work. And as they're coming in, I realize like, it's a little odd because they're all really, really young. Like everybody's super young. And then a lot of them are wearing the color. The company's color was orange. And they had a lot of swag. They had T-shirts and hats and sunglasses and shoes. And, all sorts. and a lot of them are coming in wearing like the team color. It's like, wow, this is... Okay, and anyway, great. And I'm sitting on the chair, and I'm waiting and waiting. And she said, well, the, your, your boss isn't here. I said, well, there's this other guy I had lunch with. Uh, how about him? I, I looks around, looks around, looks around. He's not there. She said, just, just, I'll figure it out. Just stay there. And, I'm like, and, I'm, and I look at my phone thinking, like, maybe I got it wrong. Maybe I'm here on the wrong day. I'm supposed to start a week from now. I looked at my phone and my calendar. like, no, the email. I think I'm supposed to be here today. You know, today's my first day. And... Uh, <clears throat> Finally, some guy that I'd never heard of comes out. He's a young guy, nice guy. And he said, oh, look, those guys aren't here. I'm sorry. Sorry for the confusion. But um, look, I, I'll tell you what. I'm going to show you around anyway, help you get settled in. And then, you know, when they get here tomorrow or something, you talk to them. So okay. So we go and do a tour and, you know, show me all the kooky stuff. They have a candy wall with all these candy dispensers. And like, we had to stop and look at the candy wall because they're very proud of the candy wall. It's like, this is kind of our culture. It's really cool and fun. And we have lots of candy. And I was like, oh, okay. And there's like a big kitchen with beer, you know, refrigerator stocked with cases of beer and bagels and food and cereal and stuff. And like, you know, all right, here's where the coffee machine is if you want a coffee. Here's where the bathrooms are. Here's the big game room with all the ping pong tables and the video game and the shuffleboard and all this stuff. Okay. And fine. So I'm thinking, okay, this is like somebody's admin and he's showing me around and he's going to take me and show me where my desk is. And I, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen after that. And then we went to a room and he said, I'm going to do you know anything about how the marketing department is organized? I said, no. He said, okay, well, I'm going to draw on the uh, org chart on the wall for you on a whiteboard and so you'll get a picture. So here's the boss. He's here. Here's this guy, this guy. And he starts drawing all the different teams. And there's a bazillion little teams, you know. And I'm on one called the content team. And so he draws the content team. He says, this is where you'll be, okay. And then I notice that he, this guy's name is above me, <laughs> above the content team. <laughs> right? And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. So wait a minute. What do you do here? Like, what's your job? And he's like, oh, I run the content team. I'm like, oh, uh, so are you my boss? Do I work for you? And he's like, well, I don't know if I'd call myself, you know, your boss. But, you know, really strictly speaking, that other guy is your manager. But, you know, day to day, I run the team that you're on. So, you know, we'll be working together. And I was like, oh, man, like, this is messed up. Like, and he's a nice guy. Mm -hmm. But... And he's like, well, come on, I'll show you where you're going to work. And then we go down the hall, and suddenly I had this moment where, I, you ever see the uh, uh, Annie Hall? Mm-hmm, yeah. And when when they go home to Annie's house for Easter, and the Woody Allen character is with her, and they all look are looking at him like really suspiciously, and the grandmother keeps staring at him, and every time she looks at him, he has like side curls, he looks like a Hasidim, you know? <laughs> and like, and, and then he looks back, and it's him again, you know, but like, and he's freaking out, and... It was like that, only I looked like, oh my God, they all look like they're, you know, in high school. And but they're all like carrying laptops and they're all doing stuff like like work stuff, you know. They having they have PowerPoint presentations and everywhere I went, like suddenly I realized like, oh my God, it was like like an acid flashback. Like, <laughs> oh crap, like I'm freaking out, man. The walls are melting. This is not good. Like, you know, um we went to this room, I had and it was like a little tiny room and I don't know, maybe a dozen people, two dozen people like packed into this room, like face-to-face and little tables all hunched over laptops just like this is the content factory 
and these are the content creators, and you're going to be a content creator. And I was like, oh, really? I thought it was going to be like working with the CEO and, you know, helping him deal with the media and writing big articles for him. And I was like, no, I don't think so. I didn't get that memo. I think you're just sitting here. I, and I'm like, what do I do? I don't know. They'll tell you. And I just sat there like kind of having a panic attack. Like, man, I'm in this little crappy little desk and everybody's going to look at me like, why is this old guy here? Like, what, what is this lunatic doing in this room with us? You know, like they were all like right out of college and, you know. Well, I think what's yeah. interesting, the way you write this is really funny because you will write what you're thinking, which is generally a bunch of words that we can't use on the yeah, radio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and then you'll tell us what you're saying, which yeah. is words we absolutely can. And I think that the, yeah. the contrast between what you are thinking and what you are saying and your kind of experience, the way you create this, makes this book really, really funny and also a little bit scary in terms of the way the corporate culture is because uh, – you were talking about Annie Hall. What I was thinking about, and you actually refer to this movie down later on in the book, is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, oh, uh, when... <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit like that. You don't, and you don't know which ones are the pod people and which ones are still human. You know, like every once in a while, you'd pull someone aside and be like, you know, okay, so you know this place is crazy, right? And sometimes it'd be cool and be like, yeah, man, this place freaks me out. But other times it'd be like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean? I love it here. And be like, oh, you know, you're a pod person. You gotta go. You, know, you gotta go running away. Oh yeah. Now, when you wrote this book, uh, you found yourself uh, using some uh, pseudonyms for some of the people, yeah. and some of the people you you referred to by their real names. So, tell us about creating some of these pseudonyms and some of these people. The people at the top you actually name, and you seem to generally get on pretty well with them, though they seem to exist in their own orbital, uh, geosynchronous orbital path, hovering over the rest of them, and maybe not too much in contact with them. Yeah, and that's what I didn't realize. Like, the two guys who hired me, the two founders, it turns out really weren't there very much. Like, especially one of them. One of them really just doesn't do anything at the company. He has a title, and he gets up every year at the annual uh, conference and gives a speech about how he, you know, oversee. he's supposed to be the techie guy. But he doesn't run engineering. He's actually not even there. And um, the other guy is the CEO. He did come in for a while and run sales, but I think he's sort of, yeah, he's sort of focused outward too, you know? So, like, mm-hmm. yeah, they weren't, they weren't really clicked into the company and the rest of the company kind of ran and ignored them kind of ran like on their own without them without them around you know and I wasn't aware of that so yeah at one point I, I pitched the two top guys on like look this isn't working out I've been here a couple months or a few months whatever and but here's what I want to do like I can't keep doing this you know these guys are stuck me in this stuff you, you you don't want to pay me what you're paying me to do this ridiculous work like so either I'll leave or but here's one proposal I have for you here's a really good idea and it would help you guys and the two founders said, yeah, that's great. That's an awesome idea. Wow, that's, that's terrific. Okay, totally. You have our blessing. Go tell, go tell your boss we said yeah. And I went and told my boss. And he said, oh, yeah, that's, that's great. Good. Give me a few weeks. And then like a few weeks later, I just got, no, no, you're not going to do that. You're going to get a worse job now. And you're getting moved off to this really noisy telemarketing room. <laughs> and you're going to sit there all by yourself. <laughs> I was like, okay. And, and oh, no, the, the thing, I had a meeting. I told the PR woman after I had the meeting with the two founders, like, this was awesome, man. I went in, I pitched to them, and they loved it. This is going to be great. And I'm going to go start, you know, getting the art guys on board. And, and the PR woman said to me, well, who else was in the meeting? And I said, no, nobody. It's just me and those two guys. She's like, well, you should have had a witness. I'm like, 
why did I need a witness? She's a like, witness. She's like, well, nobody's going to do what they say. Like, nobody pays any attention to the CEO. And he's going to forget what you talked about as soon as he walks out. Like, he's not going to remember any of that conversation. And I was like, no, that can't be true. She's like, oh, yeah, no, that, that's, I don't know. If I were you, I think if you should have had some other people there with you. This is the woman you refer to as Spinner. Spinner. She's like, <laughs> yeah, it was, I said, it was still me. If it was a movie... And it was like office space. She, her name would be like Judy Spinner, the PR person. Like she could spin anything. You know, she could, you know, no matter what, she could tell you like why it was great for. Her. Yeah, she was very peppy. She was. She had been a uh, uh, a volleyball captain in college. I was going to say a cheerleader, <laughs> but it was like a cheerleader. Yeah, but and they were very cheery cheerleaders. Literally, there was a time when these guys. I didn't find this out till after I left, but like the year before I was there. They all went to this big conference here in San Francisco, the Dreamforce Conference that Salesforce.com has that takes over San Francisco every year for like a week. And their idea for a way to get attention for the company was they all dressed up in orange cheerleader track suits, like track pants and jackets. And they gave went <laughs> and they went around giving out little baby unicorns that supposedly meant something. I don't know what, but they all had to wear these uniforms. And they all thought this was great. Like even Years later, they were like, that was so good. We, like, totally rocked that show. We owned that show. We were like, everybody noticed us. And they'd be like, hey, I love you guys. Love your, your cheerleader outfits. And I was like, all I could think is, I went to that conference when I was working there the year after, and we were just, we could wear our regular clothes. We didn't have to wear funny outfits. But I thought, I would not have done that. And what would happen if you said, like, I don't really want to wear the cheerleader outfit? Like, I'm afraid I might run into someone I know. And they're going to be like, dude, what has happened to you? Like, you know, I didn't realize things were so bad, but here you are in an orange tracksuit running around in San Francisco, like cheering for your team. But yeah, they were very much like cheerleaders. It was, and it was like you had to buy into that. You had to buy into the, the enthusiasm. I, I literally got an email this week from someone else who got, that's the other thing, when they fired you, they called it graduation. Yeah. So they would say, um, which I thought was just the most twisted, weird, Orwellian thing I had ever seen in my life, right? But I got an email, and I thought it was just me. This woman said to me, I'm 23 now, or whatever. She's very young. First job out of college. She got hired at this place, and then they fired her after three months, and the reason was they said that she wasn't excited enough. You just don't seem excited enough. <laughs> like, really? Like, how excited do I have to be to, to, to stay here, you know? And like... It's hilarious. And, and I thought, I first thought, okay, I'm just old and I'm a curmudgeon, and, and, which I am, right? But this is a young, vibrant, 22-year-old woman, her first job out of college. Like, you know how you are. You want to eat the world when you come out of college. You're going to kill it that first job. She was full of ideas, brimming with energy. She was so excited to have this job, but she wasn't excited enough. She wasn't, didn't have the right kind of excitement. It's, it's, it's weird. It's pretty scary. And I love the way that you convey the kind of machinations and the, the kind of interpersonal manipulation that goes on. This this is a company where, in a sense, almost all of them have seem to have majored not in marketing technology or anything else, but in uh, weird interpersonal dominance psychology. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's office politics. I don't know because I, I always worked as a journalist. I worked from home. Mm-hmm. I'd go to New York and, you know, spend a week in the office sometimes or I'd travel for stories, but you're sort of on your own. You're kind of a, you know, you're roaming around on your own. And I, I, so I would hear about the office gossip at Forbes or Newsweek, oh, so-and-so did this, but I never was part of it because I just, I was blissfully ignorant. This is the first time I was ever going in every day and seeing how little people would like mess with each other just to like, well, let's throw a stick in their spokes over, you know, let's, let's, let's kind of. 
throw a rock onto them over there and we'll mess them up and that'll get back at them for what they did to us. Like there's a lot of that stupid petty stuff among departments. I think that happens at a lot of companies. Like mm-hmm. I've heard even big departments at Microsoft would basically be more focused on hurting each other than on selling to the customers. <laughs> like they just become like obsessed with like, you know, we got to beat those guys, you know? Um, so I, I, yeah, there's some of that. It is very petty kind of stuff. It was silly. It was funny though, but yeah. You have a chapter called the the um, the happy awesome startup cult. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which is it, 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 you know, is a perfect description of this place. It, it, there's really a cult like feel here. But you found yourself running afoul of some of your coworkers when you made a comment, uh, what you thought was some constructive criticism. So talk about this episode with the, your two bloggers, co-bloggers. Jan oh, oh, that incident. Yeah, I was thinking of a different one. I had a lot of things where I stepped on grenades. <laughs> I really did not do a good job here. But uh, uh, that's right. I, the, so my boss, that young guy who I met on the day one, said to me, uh, we want to make the blog better. And the two founders, when they hired me, said, look, the blog is terrible. It's embarrassing. It's really, really bad. And we think, like, a journalist could help make it better. And I said, oh, yeah, I probably could. And uh, so... Zach, my boss, says, uh, can you write me up a memo? All the things we should do to improve the blog. There's three women who run the blog. And uh, and I'm going to give it to my boss, Wingman, and they'll you know, start the conversation about how we can re- relaunch the blog and what we should be doing differently. So just, just come in like, so, you know, it's just as a journalist or as an outside person, you've read the blog, you've looked at it, you've now been here for a little while, you sort of see how things are work. Just give us an assessment of how a journalist would do this. So... I wrote a pretty long memo with suggestions, and I tried to be sort of diplomatic, you know, the thing where you say something nice up front and then say, but, you know, the blog is great and it does a lot of good things, but, you know. So, <laughs> I, but, it, but also, uh, but it was critical. Mm-hmm. And the next day he emailed it to all three of the women and me, said, hey, guys, here's a memo that Dan just wrote about how to improve the blog. And it was kind of like, I said, dude, I, I think, I didn't know you were going to send it to them. You were supposed to send it to the boss. Like, I think that, you know, and now they hate me, right? He's like, no, no, it'll be cool. I'm like, are you out of your mind? Like, you just had me write a memo saying all the things they're doing wrong, and then you gave it to them. And I'm like, I don't know if he was trying to mess with them or what he was trying to do. But, uh, yeah, so that that clearly, you know, got things off on the wrong foot for me and them. That didn't help. Um, yeah. Explain how a teddy bear comes oh. into the story. <laughs> yeah, this is one of my favorite moments. I think I had been there, let's see, I started in April, maybe been three, four, five, a few months. And I'm starting to think like, okay, this isn't going well and everybody's really cheery. And I went through the training and it's like kind of cult brainwashing and I'm like not buying into it. <clears throat> and one day, the woman who runs PR tells us, okay, the co-founder, the CTO guy, um, he also considers himself kind of a management guru and like a, he's got all these innovations about management and he likes to write articles on LinkedIn where he's an influencer and uh, a thought leader. And the irony is that he has all these ideas about how to run a company, but he doesn't run this company. He's, he doesn't have any day-to-day role. So it's like the guy who doesn't play baseball telling you how to, how to hit a fastball, right? So he's, he's written an article and... 
PR woman wants us all to get out on social media and just promote the hell out of it and try to drive traffic to it. Because they're always about like spamming people and like we just got to get numbers. You got to get numbers. Like, so my feeling is if you write an article on LinkedIn and it's really good, it's, it'll, get, it'll get attention because it's good. Like I posted a thing on LinkedIn last week that really struck a nerve. It's had 700,000 views in a week. But it's not because we went out and spammed it and tried. You know, it's just, it's just things that are good will find an audience, right? Mm-hmm. I, I believe. Um, so they would do these things where they give us what they call lazy tweets where all you have to do is click and a tweet goes out under your name onto Twitter saying, hey, great new article by blah, blah, blah. Check it out here and there's a link and it's all done for you. But of course what happens is then 50 people from the company all go onto Twitter and tweet the exact same thing at the same time. It's ridiculous. So anyway, so I went and looked at the article and the article says, look, I've come up with this idea that we have to always be solving for the customer. No matter what we do, we have to think about the customer. SFTC, we call it. Solve for the customer. As opposed to STFU. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I was like, because WTF, right? But they, um, and he said, so I started bringing, putting an empty chair at our management team meetings, and that was the sit-in for the customer. But that wasn't enough. I thought we had to take it one step further. So I got a teddy bear, and I bring the teddy bear to meetings. I name her Molly, and I put her at the meeting at the table, and she is standing, she stands in for the customer. And that way we're all aware that no matter what decision we make, we always have to think, what does this mean for the customer? And there's a picture on this article of LinkedIn, right, with, with this little teddy bear at a table in a conference room next to the CMO. And the teddy bear has this little cup of, like, Red Bull in front of it, like a little can of Red Bull. And the teddy bear kind of looks pissed off, right? It's kind of like this mean little teddy bear, you know? I was like, this is so funny. This is so crazy, right? This is just insane. Like the boss is bringing a teddy bear to meetings and making people talk to it, right? So I look around and nobody's saying anything, you know? And I I faced Zach, that guy, just like you and I are facing each other now, only with like monitors in between us, right? So I kind of like looked around my monitors like, hey, dude, dude. Because there's people all around. You don't want to, you know, you don't want to make fun of L. Ron Hubbard in front of the other Scientologists. So I'm like, hey. He's like, what? I'm like, did you read that article? And he's like, yeah, yeah, that was pretty good. I'm like, no, no, the teddy bear. He's like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, no, dude, that's crazy, right? He's like, well, no, I think it's a good idea. You know, a lot of companies lose sight of the customer. And I was like, no, dude, come on. That's a grown man bringing a teddy bear to meetings. Like, that's crazy. Like, you know, we should be, like, having a field day with this, right? Like, any place that ever works, people would be, like, busting stitches over this, right? And he was just not going to dish on the guy. He was just, no, I think it's a great idea. And I'm like, wow. Like, that scared the hell out of me. And then I'm thinking, okay, this poor guy on LinkedIn, he's going to get savaged. Like, people are going to leap in. Like, what are you? But no, the comments come in. Even the comments are like, this is a really great article. Thank you so much. I might start bringing my own stuffed animal to meetings. And I'm like, maybe it's me, right? Like, I'm, I'm like, I felt like I'm, I'm running in the halls of the asylum. Like, maybe I'm crazy. Maybe the whole world has changed, right? And it's like now a world where you bring teddy bears. And I'm like from the old days when you didn't have teddy bears, right? I call this friend of mine who worked in marketing for a while, a former journalist. I'm like, I tell him the story. And he's like, I'm like, is this, is this normal? He's like, dude, it's Jonestown. You have to get out of there now. Like, get out now. If they're bringing a teddy bear to meetings, you need to run. And but like, I couldn't run. I'm, I'm thinking I got to stay for a year anyway. But it was just, yeah, like hilarious. Like that to me was like the, the one, mo- well, one of several moments where I thought, this is crazy. And what, what's crazier is that nobody challenged it, right? Mm-hmm. 
Well, you know, as I read the book, there were so many moments when I would just look and read. I'd read something that you'd write, and I'd think, uh-oh, this does not end well. <laughs> Yeah, this is. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, you see, you saw right through to the ending. <laughs> you gave it away now. Great. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of obvious. Like from page one, like this isn't going to end well. This, because well, yeah, it wouldn't be a book. If, it wouldn't be a story if it ends well. If you took a job and said, "I took a job and it was great, and everything worked out fine," <laughs> like no book there, right? Yeah, you kind of know. Like I think you know from the cover, even like, okay, this this was bad. This is this this is a story about a job that didn't go well. Well, I, I love the title, The Bozo Explosion. Oh, yeah. Because I, all I could think of is the old Firesign Theater album. I think we're all bozos on oh, this bus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a, that's a Guy Kawasaki line about the bozo explosion. Like, you hire a few bozos, but then they hire other bozos. And pretty soon, like, it just they just explode. And you get, like, yeah. It's like the level of incompetence that the Peter Principle. Yeah. Uh, but... The, once they're promoted to their level of incompetence, then they hire even more incompetent people underneath them. Right. So it's kind of a reversal of the pyramid principle, which Peter principle, which makes sense. They put you in charge of a podcast. Yeah. How did that work out? Oh, it's terrific. No, <laughs> <laughs> it went great. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it wasn't bad. I mean, uh, there was just like the new, they're going to invent a new job for me. They were just, at this point, they just wanted me to leave, right? They just, I think what happens in these companies is for whatever reason, they, I don't know why they couldn't just fire me, but maybe they figured they felt they couldn't. So I thought, well, let's just make him really unhappy so he'll leave. And is this when, this is after Trotsky? Yeah, Trotsky Tr came in. He Trotsky. was my boss. He was my new boss. Now, let's set this up a little bit because Trotsky, when you guys first meet, he's about your age and you guys get on well for a while, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a charming guy and, and, uh, and he was older. He was mm -hmm. like in his early 40s. So I was like, oh, good. Like sort of like my generation. And uh, and yeah, so we kind of hit it off. And I liked working for him. And he said, I'm going to give you a better job than what you've had. And we're going to start over. Fresh start for you here. And I was like, oh, good. That's cool. Um, but then at some point he turned. I don't know if he turned or if it was his boss who's called Cranium in the book. Mm -hmm. Cranium might have just said to him, look, nah, get get rid of this guy. So make him miserable. So they gave me this job running a podcast, but I wasn't going to be on the podcast. I would just be like the helper on the podcast. I would line up the talent, the guests, mm -hmm. you know, schedule the thing, schedule the CMO and the guest to be in the studio at the same time and get the microphones and, you know, edit it, you know, put it together and then post it on iTunes. And, and then the big thing was we're a marketing company, so we need to do great marketing on this podcast. And again, my argument was, Great podcasts find an audience because they're great, and you find your audience. And uh, you know, it doesn't have to be the biggest in the world either. It can be a small but really dedicated audience. It you know, oh, like influential piece people. Yeah, but I mean, like yeah. you can just it is what it is. Like mm -hmm. content is content. Like I believe it's it's. I don't think you can you can gin up fakeness. So their thing was like, let's put out a an email campaign to all of our customers and all of our whatever people on this, thousands of people on these lists. And just ask them all to just click on a button to subscribe to the podcast so that when they do that, Apple will suddenly see a whole bunch of subscribers and the algorithm at Apple will say, oh, this must be a great podcast and will push us to the top. And then we'll get all this, you know, public buzz because we'll be a top 10 podcast. My feeling is like you might get a spike out of that. But it goes away because unless those people are really listening, like I just feel like it takes time. You have to start recording this podcast. And you have to I mean, you can advertise it and you can promote it sure but you have to have something good to start with 
and let it build over time. And I think people over time go, oh, have you listened to this? this you should listen to this guy's podcast. It's really good. Mm-hmm. This guy's got great guests. And oh, did you hear the one with so-and-so? Oh, yeah. Go back and find that one. That's really good. Like it just, it takes time to build it. And uh, so mo- a lot of my job there was like, there was a lot of focus on how are we going to promote this? When, how long is it going to be till this is the number one business podcast in the world? And I was like, I don't know. How long is infinity? What's the age of the universe? <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. You know, like, like never. This isn't going to be the number one podcast in the world. Like, that's that's an insane goal. But they were like, well, we like insane goals. That's why that's why we're, why we're, we're, we're overachievers. That's why we are what we are, you know? You know, I was like, okay. But, um, yeah, so that was my last job running this podcast. And uh, I got it off the ground. We did a few guests, and then I, I left, and someone else, I think, I, well, someone else took it over briefly. And then the guy who was the host of the podcast got fired for doing something that they still won't tell me what it was, but something that involved hacking and extortion and trying to get hold of my book. So there's no one to do the podcast anymore because the podcast host <laughs> got, got thrown, almost got, you know, and got investigated by the FBI. So that was like, okay, that didn't end well. Uh, apparently, this whole idea of setting up your internet company based on what you call a kind of a frat house biz model, that proves to not be the best idea in the world. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking, I isn't know, it? right? Because beer bong. What could go right. wrong with beer bong? Were you in a frat in college? Were you no. ever in a frat? No, no. me either. No. But like, but you knew what they were, right? Yeah. And like, who doesn't look at that and think, wow, that's a good company model. That's a way to run a company. <laughs> like, you know, like there's like, yeah, I don't know how that has become a thing, but it has. And it's become this thing where, like, the, the now they don't even give them adult supervision anymore. They used to be in tech that they <laughs> say- Adult supervision. Well, no, that's what they used to call it. Like, at, at, at Google, the Google guys, when they were funded, Kleiner Perkins said, no, you got to have, you got to hire a CEO. We're going to give you the money, but you have to f- hire a real CEO. So they hired Eric Schmidt, who was older and had been an executive at different companies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Microsoft, in the early days, made Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer get- uh, a, a more experienced veteran executive kind of businessy guy to be the business guy. Like that was a standard procedure. Like, yeah, we want you young guys have a great idea and, and it's terrific and you're great engineers, but you need someone who knows how to run a company. Like there is actually uh, something to that. Like, like HubSpot didn't have that. They had for for seven years they had no HR because the founder thought, oh, HR is BS. I I don't like HR. HR is one of those old fashioned. We don't need HR. We're just gonna hire. It's like, no, dude, you actually need HR. There are there are laws that you know that apply to companies and how they hire and fire. And like, you probably want someone who knows those laws to run your HR department. Um, but they, yeah, there's this idea that we can just be cowboys. We can be completely rogue. So now they have companies where they'll fund these young guys who, not only have they never run a company before, some of them have never had a job before. They've never worked at a company before. And they're like, but you're the boss, and here's. Fifty million dollars. Go build a company, and no, we're not going to hire. We're not going to get any executive guy to help you. No, you just do what you think is right. So of course they build a frat house. They hire all their friends, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. I and guess then the friend, and then they, they think perfect they, they, sense. Yeah, yeah, of course, right? Wouldn't you? Like, yeah. I mean, if if you and I were twenty five and someone gave us like a huge amount of money, we'd be like, all right, dude, this is awesome. Like, <laughs> cool. let's go spend the money. So they build a headquarters. It always looks like like a kindergarten. They build some crazy kooky headquarters. GitHub a company out here built a replica of the of the Oval Office in the White House, like for their CEO, like, let's make an Oval Office, dude. Like, that'll be great, you know? Like, yeah, that's a smart idea. And they're like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, let's have a nautical theme. So they hire these people to make these elaborate headquarters for themselves. 
They get all sorts of free beer and parties, right? They hire, they have this thing called culture fit, which means hire people we think we'll get along with. They literally will say, like they said this to me at this company, but this is a common thing. Like, I like to hire people that I'd like to have a beer with after work. Yeah, this whole, like, I'd like yeah. to have a beer with that person. No. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm not sure I would. Yeah, right. I mean, like, there's a lot of people I wouldn't necessarily want to have a beer with after work, but I think they'd be great at running my company. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I don't need to be their pal, right? right. But the, but so basically, it's an excuse for hiring your bros or hiring people who are like your bros. So then you have this incredible lack of diversity because you have, you know, like-minded people hiring like-minded people, and and it becomes very culty because there's this group think You only hire people who all agree with the bros. Um you know, and the stuff that happens in frat houses ends up happening in companies, and like the bad stuff that happens in frat houses ends up happening in companies, and uh, and yeah, and, and suddenly it's it things take a very they they go south very quickly. It's a pretty. There are some pretty dark turns in in this book. There are kind of they didn't happen directly to you, but you allude to them, and it's all kind of a result of this, as you say, the frat house atmosphere. Yeah, like a woman got fired. She went on medical leave and came back, and her boss, who was like in her 20s, younger than she was, this woman had a kid. She came back from medical leave. From, she went away for a month, and they just told her, like, yeah, it's not working out. Your productivity isn't good. And she's been there for a few years. And then, then she went to HR and said, I don't, you know, I just got back from medical leave. And this is sort of, apparently it's this big HR no-no to fire somebody after a, a leave like like you can't do that and mm-hmm. they're like whoops sorry that was a mistake we didn't know you know like um you know it's just it's just stuff like that it's like it happens all the time like you read when i was researching the book i ended up doing all this uh reading of other companies startups where there have been age discrimination suits or sexual harassment suits and um i mean there's a lot of them and one of the age discrimination suits kind of cracked me up because the woman who brought it was 41 Oh the ripe old God. age of 41. But she was working with guys who were kind of like, do you know how to use a computer? Like, you're too old. You can't close. You don't know how to close. And it was like, and then just like making really horrible sexist, no, like sexual overtures, like disgusting stuff. I put it in the book, but I can't say it on the radio. But like, you read it and you're just, your jaw hangs open. Like, oh my God, right? And uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's you know, and, and these are happening all the time. And there's, there's the, it's very predictable. You give, young sort of not very nice guys a lot of money and tell them they're rock stars and they're 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 most amazing things ever and they've already got a huge ego what you know, you know this is what happens right and this is, yeah this is why they make you insure your car exactly this is, this is exactly this is why there are seatbelt laws right yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> because no seatbelts for the corporate world yeah exactly that's like it's like just like driving exactly it's like drive with no seatbelts you know like people flying through windshields right yeah it's exactly what it's like it's like this is why there are yeah this is why there are laws about this stuff uh, my like, favorite line from a comedian don't drink and drive don't drink and drive how am i going to get anywhere yeah yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> the, one that, the one that cracks me up is like the age bias one and uh they all kind of like uh, i had a little house with the ceo of this company because he went out and made a statement in the times about how we really want to hire young people we oh great, that's great right experience yeah. really overrated and i was like a did people really think that like this, you know. B, even if you think it, you shouldn't say that out loud. And they'd be like, "Why, dude?" I was like, "Well, there's one reason. That's it's, it's illegal, right? So that's there's a little problem there, right? You can't hire and fire based on people's age. Like, well, I think that's 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 not right. I'm like, well, dude, no, trust me, it's the law, right? You know, 
Like, and I, one guy I tried to say to him, well, like, imagine instead of you talking about old people, imagine the boss said, we don't really like to hire gay people. Or, you know what? Not so big on the black people. White people are really good in tech. We really are trying to build a company around white people. Like, you can't say that, right? <laughs> Even if you think it, you can't say that. And uh, he's like, yeah, but that's not what he said. He said old people. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm saying this is this is an analogy, right? And he was like, yeah, but he, uh, I think he's right. Young people are better at tech. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, first of all, it's not true. But secondly, it's just like, but, but you know, and then this week, the company that I wrote about put out this long rebuttal. But the rebuttal basically said, yeah, it's kind of right. And one of the rebuttals was diversity. We know we need to do better. We have 1,200 employees now. 85 of them are over the age of 40. Out of a 1,200-person workforce, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, oh, wow, there, I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. And probably none right. over 50. Maybe, no, there's one guy. There was one guy there who was actually, I think he was 60. He was older than I was. And he and I became friends. We were like the two old guys. And we used to go out to lunch together. And then sit in the mall food court across the until you thought better of it. Yeah, until I was like, we can't be seen together. We're gonna get, we're gonna get paired up as like the two old guys. Like, let's take separate routes and meet at the mall. You know, because I knew we looked like the people in the Dunkin' Donuts with the windbreakers on. You know, talking about the Korean War. You know, goddamn Obama. You know, it's like that's what we were like the, the grumbly old guys. You know, talking about our sore hips and stuff. They just started a Twitter account today. This company about me and it says. Fake is this my picture says old man lions, and it's like it says, you know, I ruptured, I, I ruptured a disc in my back last year, so it's like, you know, making jokes about like, like what an old fart I am. Gee, it's that like, seems like really ill advised. I mean, not great could, PR, <laughs> not great, it's PR. terrible PR, but couldn't you, you could even go after them legally? I mean, if you wanted to say, I would, they hounded me out of the company, which is essentially what they did, yeah, based on my age. Here's the proof they put up a Twitter blog well, you can't about prove it. it's them, but I know it's them. And they, and they, so they only had five followers. That was the other thing, they had five followers. One was like in Japan and all the bios in Japanese. I don't know where that came from. Then there's some other random person. Then there's three people from this company, including the COO. And another top exec and another person, and they're like the three followers for this hilarious new Twitter feed. It's like, dude, are you guys like that stupid about PR? Like, and yes, they are, right? right. It was like, but you know, so, so somebody pointed on Twitter, oh, wait a minute, former employee complains about ageism, so you respond by making a Twitter feed about him where you call him an old man. It's like, like okay, boo, point, proof. like, thank you. Like, it's just, but it's, yeah, it's like that kind of world, and they're really defiant about it. Like, they, I think. And it's not just these guys. It's the whole tech industry is very proud of the fact that. Well, you said that I think one of the things you say that I think is very interesting and really smart observation that ripples out through the whole industry is that they believe it's they're kind of above law because it's kind of civil disobedience, yeah. especially when they went after you after you left and hacked your computer. Talk about that. That is scary stuff. Well, like last July. So I, I left and I left in like November. In February, I wrote a blog post saying, hey, I'm going to go write this book, a funny memoir about being an old guy and I, trying to, I, my, 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 my ridiculous attempt to become a marketing person, like that totally failed. I'm going to go write a book about that. And, um, Sounds charming and self-deprecating, which is how the book is. Yeah. I mean, I make fun yeah. of them too. Yeah. So it's like, you know, uh, you know, but anyway, yeah. But, um, uh, in July, they just announced that they had fired the CMO. They had that my boss, the VP Trotsky, had 
had resigned before they could decide whether to terminate him, and they had sanctioned the CEO, and they had turned the whole thing over to law enforcement. But they wouldn't say what the whole thing was. They just said, we've turned it all over to law enforcement. And this was had to do with, quote, a book coming out? Yeah, a book. They didn't say it. But then, then later in an interview with The Globe the next day, they said, yeah, it was, it was my book. Uh, but they still wouldn't say what it was. And mind you, it's kind of funny because they have this big culture code, and they're very proud of their culture code, and it's like a 128-slide PowerPoint presentation. And one That's of the big, scary. One of, yeah, and one of the core values is transparency, right? Rad, we're radically transparent. We are just uncomfortably transparent, except they come to this. So they won't say what it was. But anyway, they did something, which was very scary, and uh, and that's how I found out about it in this press release. And I tried asking them, and they won't tell me, and uh, what they won't tell me what they did. And then I got interviewed by the FBI, and they wouldn't tell me what they did. So I finally did a FOIA request, and I got these documents through FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, and they showed there was actually an extortion conspiracy. They were trying to dig up stuff about maybe people at the publishing company or something, and then blackmail them into not publishing the book, which is, first of all, a really insane crime, like a really bad crime. Like, like just, that's just, that's like, really stupid. That's, right, not, yeah. that's not going to work. Yeah, that's that is, not going to work. That's right? going like, to make them want to publish it more. Or, yeah, exactly. It was like the king of comedy, you know, where uh-huh. they like, let's, let's kidnap Johnny Carson, tie him to a chair, put a gun in his mouth, and that's how we'll get on TV. Okay. <laughs> maybe not the best way to get on TV, but it was like that. It was like, it was like, the gang that couldn't hack straight, and then they got caught somehow. They got caught doing it. Um, so yeah, they were there. Uh, it was a little, little, little scary. At first, I was really thought it was hilarious, and then I started thinking it's not so hilarious because I don't know what they did, and I still don't know. Did they break into my house? I have kids. You know, did they hack our computers? Do they? What do they have? Did they hire someone? The scary thing was, did they hire someone else to do the hacking? And that middleman has all our stuff. Like my, my, the same time this happened, it just, I think it was coincidence, but I don't know. Last year, my, when I went to file my taxes, there was, oh, sorry, somebody's got your social security number and they already filed a tax return with your social security number. That's so who, scary stuff. Yeah, so That's who knows? seriously scary. Yeah, like your medical records out there. I don't know what's out there. And it, then I thought, what if the whole thing was, the funny thing about getting hacked or whatever is you don't even have to really hack someone. You just have to make them think that maybe they were hacked. And then, then they never know. So then you have to assume that basically everything is out in the wind, right, for the rest of your life. You know, you never know. No. Your social security number's out there, right? And uh, uh, so, yeah, that was uh, – and then, then it seemed to take kind of a sinister turn, which everything that had been sort of a lighthearted, goofy book became this kind of – Yeah, the epilogue scary. is a little bit dark and scary. Yeah. I mean, once – and it points out uh, something that's really important. Once you've been hacked, it's a kind of crime where – you don't know the extent to which the crime has been committed. Yeah. Because it's just information. If somebody comes into your house and they take something, you can see the drawers they've opened, you can see what they've taken. They break into their, your computer, you have no idea unless they leave some terrible thing behind that destroys your computer. Right. Yeah. Because you, you're stealing a copy of everything. So you're not stealing the thing, right? Exactly. Yeah. No, and that, that's that's what uh, struck me about it. And um, And I feel like it would be very easy for them to at least let me know, don't worry. You know, your kids are safe. Uh, like, they could leave an anonymous letter in my mailbox. <laughs> like, here's the thing. Like, this is a local company. So one of the board members lives in my town, and we have kids the same age, and I've had coffee with them. We have a lot of mutual friends. Like, we know each other socially. And, like, you could come over and just tell me. Like, why are you siding with these guys? These guys are assholes. I mean, I, I get it. You don't like that I wrote this book. I'm sorry. I, shouldn't, I can't say that word on the air, right? You That's okay. I'm, I'll, I'll beep it up. 
and it's a good it's good for the podcast. Oh, okay. Yeah. But anyway, these guys are bad guys, and I get it that you don't like me because I wrote this book and I'm making fun of this culture. But on the other hand, I am helping them by pointing out the diversity problem. I'm pointing out the Orwellian language. All these things that now, yesterday, in their rebuttal, they say they're going to change and fix. They're going to try to do better. So, okay, so it might be unpleasant medicine to take, but maybe it was good, right? But but whatever, even if you think I'm a bad guy, I have kids, you know, you could at least uh, tell me what, what happened. And and just, if, if only to say, everything that happened was over here, it didn't have anything to do with you, you're fine, don't worry, nobody tapped your phones or nobody followed you, just tell me. Sure. But they won't, which is sinister, right? I mean, Absolutely sinister. Tell us something not sinister that's your next step. Where are we going to see Dan Lyons next? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I'm hoping to maybe uh, develop this as a movie or a TV show. I think there's a potentially really funny show um, or movie in it. Um, but the other thing that struck me is that the age bias question that kind of came up in this book. Um, that's is, a national conversation. It really is. And I, I wasn't even aware of how big it is. Um, you know, there's this theme in the book of reinvention of can you at 50 get laid off and start a whole new career? Can you do that? And I think you can, but not in the tech industry. But um, I wrote an article on LinkedIn last week about age bias and how tech companies don't even lie about it. They're very open about it. And it got such a response. It's had, my, my inbox has been overflowing with email from people telling me their stories. And I feel like there's something there. I feel like there's that's a story that needs to be told about people who are getting pushed out of the workforce at 40 or 50. There's something really wrong about that. And and it's not sustainable. As a society, we can't sustain a world where people stop working at 40. That's just not going to work. Well, they expect us all to, they're not, they don't want us to retire till we're, they're set, we're 70. And so they better give us a place to work that's not McDonald's. Right, so it's a weird, it's a weird gray zone there. And mm-hmm. I tell you, I in the last couple months, as I've become more sort of attuned to this, I've taken Ubers, and uh, the Uber drivers are like guys my age, and I can tell like these are guys who used to have really good jobs, you know, and they're like, well, I'm doing this, I'm just kind of, you know, keeps me busy, blah blah blah, and I feel like that's what the tech industry would like us to do: say, we're not going to give you a job anymore. We, you, you know. You you can't you you're not good enough to do tech anymore. So you're done. Oh, but Uber will hire you. Well, they won't hire you. They'll let you drive for them as a contractor, and they won't give you any benefits. And they created this new economy of, um, of serfs, right? Of, and, of uh, Robert Reich calls it the what is it? The sharing the sharing economy is is bunk is basically his take that they're becoming, it's it's, it's ex- exploitation. Basically, it's saying we're going to take this whole generation of people, push them out of jobs where we have to give them benefits. And pay them decently, make them into independent contractors, and you're on your own. And uh, and meanwhile, the guys running Uber will will make billions of dollars because they're running a company without any costs, without any employees. Right? Um, I think it's messed up, and I think that's a big conversation that needs to happen. I think you're the man to fire it off. I hope so. Yeah, I've been speaking with Dan Lyons. His new book is Disrupted. Thank you for joining me, Dan. Thank you for having me.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.